Turn to, we're going to look at 1 Timothy this morning, but by way of introduction, Ken had uh, said, you need to read Matthew chapter 13, verses 51 to 52 from Austin Sparks. So I did, and I went over there and looked at it, and uh, here's what it said. This is, of course, in the chapter on the parables of the kingdom and so on, and uh, this is the New Living Translation. And it says, do you understand all these things? Yes, they said, we do. Then he added, every teacher of religious law who becomes a disciple in the kingdom of, the, of heaven or of the heavens is like a homeowner who brings from his storeroom new gems of truth as well as old. Well, that struck me. I thought, new gems of truth. Well, this morning we're not bringing out new gems of truth. We're going to go to some old truths today, and that's in 1 Timothy. So that's where we're at. Uh, Paul here in this first chapter is instructing his young protege, Timothy, uh, concerning the dangers of false doctrine uh, and the, some misguided teachers and the damage that it can do. And he talks then about sound doctrine, healthy doctrine, healthy teaching that will edify and build up and strengthen your soul. And this sound doctrine, you'll see later on, it goes right hand in hand with the gospel of the glory of God, the blessed God. And so it was this gospel that Paul was entrusted with and what he was proclaiming and that they were to not to deviate from. They were to hold to sound teaching, sound doctrine. And of course, then Paul, we find out later here in this same chapter, that he is described as a pattern. He is an example for all those who would afterwards believe. So it's important to understand Paul's life and Paul's teaching because he's an example for us. Chapter 1, verse 1, it says this, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God our Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ, our hope. This word commandment is something like an injunction or a decree that God set forth concerning Paul as to his calling as an apostle, a sent one, to preach the gospel. And then he addresses it to Timothy, a true son in faith, a genuine son. One you might not, we might say, ah, he was the real deal, legitimate, genuine. And of course, that was important. Over in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 3, Paul said this, he said, I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow. And that word true is the same word. It's a genuine yoke fellow. I like, I like the word yoke fellow. I have to admit, I got distracted looking at that. It's just an interesting word in Greek. It fascinated me. It means somebody that's yoked together as a married couple would be or business partners or a colleague that you're associated with. So when you are yoked together, now that word is, and I'm, I have to stop and think about it every time so I can make sure I 
say it correctly. Syzygy. Syzygy. Why do I try to remember such a thing? Because it is one fantastic Scrabble word. If you get all the good letters, you can get a lot of points if you can play it in the right place. S-Z-Y, S-Y-Z-Y, G-Y, that's what it is. Now, if you know Scrabble, there's only two Ys, so you've got to have a blank plus the two Ys plus the Z, and it's all got to work out, but it's a great word. Some people, though, think this is actually the guy's name, Syzygus. He was a genuine yoke fellow, true. That's the word we're really focusing on here. Like I said, I got distracted. I had to go, that was a cool word. I had to go play with that for a while. But to call somebody a, a, a true, a genuine son in the faith was important to Paul. And he wanted Timothy to know that. But you know, we often say the pastoral epistles, and they were written to Paul's protege here, this one to Timothy, and then he wrote one to Titus. But as you read this, you, you really, really get behind the scene here. He's really writing to the church where Paul is, or where Timothy is. And so he's given instructions regarding what the church was to be like and what was going on. Grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. An interesting introduction, nonetheless. Um, Paul, you know, has this common introduction in his letters, grace and peace and mercy. I really like the word mercy also because it speaks of kindness, tenderness, compassion. And when I think about God's mercies towards me, sometimes I just wonder, I'm sure like you do from time to time, why? Why me? Why did God allow the things to happen to me in my Christian life that have happened to me? I am amazed at his mercies towards me and how kind and how gentle and how long-suffering he has been with me over these past 40-plus years, 50-plus years now, I guess. I mean, I am going to be 70, I know, but it's, I'm talking about my time as a believer. Well, I got to go on, see? I'm going to get like you, Jimmy. I mean, I got to move on. Tears will come. Verse 3, he says, As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus, that you may charge or command some that they teach no other doctrine. No other instruction. No other teaching. Now this was heavy on Paul's mind. And it concerned him. Those who were drifting off. He's not calling them heretics. They were simply straying away under to other things that didn't, well, maybe as you and I say it, it just didn't mean a hill of beans. It didn't have anything to do with what being a Christian was all about. We're going to see that. He says, teach them, tell them, don't give heed to fables, endless genealogies, because they cause disputes rather than godly edification, which is in faith. 
In other words, stick to the things that build each other up, that will increase your faith, that will move you towards the goal of your Christian life. And stop with the nonsense. That's really what all Paul's saying. As a matter of fact, he goes on to say, now the purpose, and that's our familiar word, telos, it's the goal, the aim, the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith. That's the goal, he said. This is where we ought to be aiming towards. And if you aren't seeking to conform your life and change your life to be according to this pattern, then you're, not, you're, you're missing the aim. You're missing the goal. You haven't fulfilled your purpose. And you remember we said Paul was a pattern apostle. Boy, you need to go back and look at Paul's history. What kind of a man he was. Well, we'll look at that in just a moment, a little bit. But all the chains that came over Paul when he met Christ on that Damascus road. Do we change as to our person the way Paul changed in conforming ourselves to the image of Christ? That's what we ought to be asking ourselves. Now, he goes on to say in verse 6, concerning this love and this good conscience and this sincere faith. And by the way, the sincere faith there means an unhypocritical faith. Now, if you stop and think about that, you know, when you read the word sincere, you, you really should think, well, if he's sincere, or there is such a thing as sincere faith, then there could be such a thing as insincere faith. If you can have a faith that is unhypocritical, and Paul's warning Timothy, then you need to know there's such a thing as a hypocritical faith. And believe me, I'm sure you've met them. So we need to ask ourselves, what is my faith like? Would anybody see me as a hypocrite? Now you know. I know that you know that as you talk to folks on the street, some of the first objections they will raise up is what? They're all a bunch of hypocrites down there at that church. They don't see genuine Christianity. So if we're going to be an example for Christ, and if we're going to follow the pattern of Paul, who is a type for us, then we ought to change our lives in accord with what the gospel calls us to be. Now, there's a reason for that. And Paul's heading in that direction. He's going to move us down the line to where we need to go. So we have to hang with Paul here. If you look in the Oxford English Dictionary, they define a hypocrite like this. It's the a person who falsely professes to be virtuously or religiously inclined, who pretends to have feelings or beliefs of a higher order than his real ones. I, don't, I think you probably already knew that, didn't you? I just thought it was good to hear it from the Oxford English Dictionary. This is what a hypocrite is. 
And we all have a tendency when we get around others to lift our standard just a little higher so we won't look so bad or they won't see us as we really are. And you know what Paul's challenging us on that? On that very principle? What is he trying to tell us? That when God's people come together and we assemble as we are this morning, that we ought to be able to be wholly transparent with each other and just be ourselves. That is to say, be a real Christian. And to act like one. To conduct ourselves like one. To speak like one. To love like one. And not have to put on a little bit of an air so folks won't know. That's, an, uh, that's a sincere faith as opposed to a hypocritical faith. By the way, he tells us then in verse 6, some have strayed from this. They've moved away from this. And they've turned aside, he says, to idle talk. This is what I was referring to a little bit ago. When you depart and forget about where our goal is and what we're headed to, and we turn to these kinds of things, he calls it idle talk, King James calls it vain talk. Others call it fruitless talk. Others, empty talk. It's all the same. It just doesn't hold any water. And it has no value. So, desiring to be teachers of the law, these who are leading them astray, he says they understand neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. And that word affirm is very interesting again. It just means they're, they're really confident of what they're saying. Matter of fact, they're so confident sometimes that we have a difficult time wanting to approach them and say, hey, you really believe what you're saying? Because they come across so strong. But Paul, of course, is not afraid, and he's encouraging Timothy in the same manner. Now, what is it all about? Well, he moves into this area about the law. Now, this area concerning the law is a touchy one for Paul. He says, knowing that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Well, how do you do that then? How do we use the law lawfully? <laughs> he tells us in the next verse, it's really not for the righteous living person. If you are living in accordance with Paul's sound doctrine, then you know what? You don't need the law. It should mean nothing to you. You can live apart from it because you are living and walking according to God's spirit. And he goes on to tell us, well, who's the law for then? Well, it's for the lawless. It's for the insubordinate or the rebellious. It is for, he says, the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and the profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites or homosexuals, for kidnappers, and you might have the translation there, men-stealers. Some translate that as slave-dealers. Because that's what he's talking about. Those who would go out and kidnap free people 
and then turn around and sell them and enslave them. And then he says for liars, should we stop and talk about what a liar is? Well, it's just somebody that doesn't tell the truth. But then he says for perjurers. So what's a perjurer? Well, that's a liar too. But that's a guy that lies under oath. Some people just tell lies. Sometimes if you're in a situation where you're under oath and you lie, then you've perjured yourself. That's who the law is for. That is to bring control and orderliness to people like that because they really just don't care. But a righteous person, a godly person, one who is walking according to God's spirit doesn't need to be concerned about the law. The standard of the law here is below them. They actually walk in a manner of life that is superior to and in accord with. And God is pleased with that. He desires that above all. Now, he moves on to say, and if there is any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, anything that opposes or goes against sound, healthy, and the word sound, I'm not a sound person. As to my physical health, <laughs> I've got some problems. Matter of fact, I've shared a few people. I did, to me, the stupidest thing that ever happened to me happened this week. I rolled over in bed in the middle of the night, and, I, and I, one of my ribs just popped right out. I thought to myself, and it hurt too, and I thought, how can you do that just rolling over in bed? I mean, all I wanted to do is go from one side to the other and go back to sleep. Well, that didn't happen. Well, that's the same word he's talking here about somebody who is in sound health. They're hearty, hale, wholesome. That's the kind of doctrine he's talking about here. Sound doctrine, sound teaching. And that sound teaching, verse 11 says, is in or must be in accord to the glorious gospel of the blessed God. Or if we looked at it, Literally, it's according to the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. By the way, you did know that stealing men and selling them was illegal, not just for us today, but it was illegal under the law too. Back in Exodus, as well as in Deuteronomy, God told him, you don't steal other men and then turn around and sell them and enslave them. So, this gospel of the glory of the blessed God, what is he talking about here? What is this gospel? And what is the glory of the blessed God? Well, as we said, this is, for many of you, I know here, this is old truth. So you're going to hear it again, because I just love it. What is the good news of the glory of the blessed God? What is that? Well, let's just trace it for a little bit. I want you to turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 
and verse 4, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. And then for all you uh, speedy demons, um, you can go ahead and turn over to Titus chapter 2 and verse 13 if you get there ahead of time. Titus chapter 2 and verse 13. Now in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and the fourth verse, of course we'll read verse 3 because it's all one sentence there. He says, but even if our gospel... Our good news here that we preach is veiled. It is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded. It's the God of this age has blinded. Who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. You see this expression again, the gospel of the glory of Christ. The first one was the gospel of the blessed glory of the blessed God. Now over here in Titus chapter 2 and in verse 13. Of course, we've got to back up to verse 11. We've got this big long sentence again. Paul was really fond of big sentences, long things. Um, I was trying to read one in Ephesians 1 the other day. I had to go over and over and just to keep my train of thought going. Begin in verse 11. It says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the what? The present age. Again, this age. Looking for the blessed hope and I'm going to correct the King James, New King James here, and the, appear, the, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us. So what, are we, what have we seen here? We've seen the gospel of the glory of the blessed God, the gospel of the glory of Christ, and now here he says the gospel of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. What is Paul talking about when he speaks of this glory? Well, I think we can trace that back, and this is the way I, my favored way to do it, so we're going to go take a look at that. Turn back to Matthew chapter 19. A very familiar passage concerning um, the rich young ruler, and we won't have time to go through that, but we will simply look at... Um, I said Matthew 19, 28, and I did. Okay, I'm in the wrong verse. So listen. Now, I'm, I'm going to give it to you as briefly as I, know I can. This, this young ruler came to Jesus and wanted to know how he could inherit eternal life or messianic life. How can I get that? How can I inherit that? Well, they go through this long ordeal, and you've been through that many times and know what it says. And, and so when it comes down to verse 26, Jesus looked at them and said, with men, this is impossible. That is, this matter of entering the, God, the kingdom of God. But he tells them, with God, all things are possible. And Peter says, well, then uh, we've left everything to follow you. Therefore, what shall we have? And Jesus said to them in verse 28, Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, 
when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory. In other words, there's coming a time, Jesus is telling them, his disciples, when the Son of Man is going to come and sit on the throne of his glory. So now we have a connection. We've got a little something to think about. There's a throne connected with this glory. And furthermore, back in Titus, he tells us there's something about his appearing that's connected with the glory. Now stay with me. Go over to chapter 20 of Matthew. And look at verse 20. Matthew chapter 20, verse 20. You remember the little story here. The, the mother of Zebedee's sons, James and John, came to him with her sons, kneeling down and asking something from him. And he said to her, what do you want? What do you wish? And she said, grant that these two sons of mine may sit one on your right hand and the other on the left in your kingdom. That was their request. <clears throat> but now, turn over to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. And begin with verse 35. Now it's the same story. Only here it says James and John then, the sons of Zebedee, Zebedee came to him saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And he said to them, Well, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us that we may sit, one on your right hand and the other on your left. Where? It doesn't say in your kingdom. It says in your glory. So we find again this association between his glory and his coming kingdom. And when he sits on that throne. Now, let's take another little step. Turn over, or back now, we'll have to go back to Matthew chapter 25. Now, of course, we know that Matthew chapter 24 and 25, Jesus is teaching his disciples regarding the future and his coming and answering their questions concerning this. And in verse 31, it says there, but when the Son of Man comes in his glory, so he's coming, and he's coming in his glory, and it says, and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. So there's a time out in the future when the Son of Man is coming and it says He is going to appear. He is coming in His glory and He's going to sit on a throne. He's going to establish His earthly kingdom. And by the way, if, we're, if you're a Christian, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, Colossians 1.13 says that that kingdom has already been inaugurated and that we have been translated or transferred into the kingdom of his dear son. It has begun, but it will be fulfilled in the future. So, the gospel of the glory. The gospel of the glory is 
clearly speaking about the coming of Jesus Christ to claim his throne. And by the way, the guarantee that he's going to be able to do that is his resurrection, his defeat of his enemies, his defeat of death. And he's coming and he's going to claim that throne. And he will then rule the world. And he will subdue every enemy and everything and one that is against him. And of course the scriptures teach us that he will usher in peace and righteousness and so on. Such as this world has never known. Now, Having said all that, Paul says concerning, in verse 11, back in 1 Timothy, concerning this gospel, he says, this message, this good news, has been committed to my trust. God has trusted me with the teaching and the preaching of this gospel. And of course, that's why Paul's letters have been preserved for us because now we have the instructions regarding that coming kingdom. Now he goes on to talk about it. Verse 12, I thank Jesus, uh, Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me, who has empowered me, given me the strength because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Although I was formerly a blasphemer. <laughs> That's the irony of the whole thing, according to Paul. I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor. I was an insolent man. And that, that word insolent man is a pretty strong word. Some translate that, that he was violently arrogant. I don't think you and I would have been really want to meet Paul before he... Before he met the Lord Jesus Christ, he was not a pleasant man to be around. And he exercised that arrogance against the church and persecuted them and blasphemed them. But, he says, I obtained mercy. Why? Because I did it ignorantly, in unbelief. I didn't know. That's all ignorant means. I didn't have the knowledge. I didn't know these things. But once he met Jesus on that Damascus road, and then a whole new era for Paul opened up and his life changed. And God, it says here, by the commandment in verse 1 of God our Savior, he was appointed, decreed to be an apostle for God to proclaim this good news about the Lord Jesus Christ. Now he goes on to tell us then in verse 14, and the grace of our Lord was exceedingly super abundant towards him with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Verse 15, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. What is that? That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. What does he mean a faithful saying? This little saying here, in a nutshell, he says, can be trusted. It can be counted on. You can depend on it because it's of its veracity. It's truth. Now, he, he, he moves pretty quickly here. He calls himself uh, a chief, one of the chief sinners, and 
Like, well, he just told us he was a blasphemer and arrogant and violent, putting people to death. And by the way, he was feeling pretty good about it. He thought he was doing God a great favor. But as he said, I was ignorant. I didn't know at that time. And so God had mercy on him. Why? I don't know. Was there something in Paul's heart that God saw? I don't know. Except that it was a part of his plan. And he decreed it to happen that Paul would be an apostle concerning this good news about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and how he was going to change the world. So he says then, I obtained mercy. So in verse 16, that in me first, foremost, above all, Jesus Christ might show all long-suffering. Now the word long-suffering is interesting. I mean, you can't believe all the different ways that people can dream up to translate a word. The New American says uh, perfect patience. The New Revised says the utmost patience. Today's English version says full patience. The New Jerusalem says inexhaustible patience. The NIV says immense patience. And the New Living Translation says great patience. Now, I don't know if any of those improve on what we see here, long-suffering. It just means tremendous patience on the part of God towards Paul that he might show all long-suffering as a pattern. A pattern. Paul, the pattern apostle. If there was anybody, you know, I, I don't know how to compare this or say, but I mean, Paul never called Peter or James or John or any of the others a pattern. But Paul's a pattern. And the word pattern here, Well, Young's literal translation translates this same verse like this. But because of this, I found kindness, mercy, that in me first, Jesus Christ might show forth all long-suffering for a pattern of those about to believe on him to life age-during or life age-lasting. The word pattern just comes from the familiar word that where we get the word tupos for type. But it has the preposition hupo in front of it, and it means to be an undertype, and it just means to be a pattern, an example. This is what I am. That's why we like so many people like Paul. We study Paul's life, what he was like. And he tells us there, he says, I'm a pattern for those about to believe or those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Now that word, that, that's exactly what he's saying. Uh, I think the King James says, who are going to believe hereafter. In other words, the point is, I'm a pattern for those who are coming after who are going to believe on the Lord Jesus. And he says it's for everlasting life. Now, those of you that come here regularly, you know that the words everlasting life literally means life for the coming age. 
life for the coming age. The word everlasting there is the word eon, or eonios, if it's an adjective. And he's talking about age-abiding or age-lasting life. What kind of an age is he talking about? You remember earlier, I zeroed in on the God of this present age. But now he's talking about a coming age. There's going to be a new one. This age in which you and I presently live is going to come to an end. But there's an age that's coming. And in that coming age, through the gospel of the glory of Christ, when he comes and sits on that throne and takes his rightful place to rule over the world, he is offering through the gospel to those who believe on him life for that coming age as well. Now, I know that most of us, we're accustomed to hearing about eternal life. And we just go way on out here to eternity and think, well, I'm, I, I trust Christ as my Savior. I've got life way out there into eternity. And you do. And we're going to look at that in a moment. But that's not the focus right here. That is not the goal that he talked about back here in verse 5 when he says the goal of the commandment, the purpose for which we are aiming is life for the next age. It is to share in the coming rule or reign of Jesus Christ. Loyal, faithful believers will be called to share in his coming rule. Now, um, oh man, we're going to look at that. Um, verse 17. Let's just do it this way. Verse 17 brings us to the end of the passage that we're looking at. And notice what he says. Now, first of all, if we said in verse 16 that Paul's a pattern to those who are going to believe or about to believe on him for life for the coming age. The next verse says, now, it's a doxology. Now to the king eternal. But if you, again, if you wanted to look at that literally, it's now to the king of the ages. And it's plural. You see, there's more than one age. It's to the king of the ages. And he says, immortal. Immortal just means what you think it means. <laughs> you can't die. You can't be, you can't, there's no corruption that occur. That's, that's the kind he's talking about. Now to the king of the ages, who is not subject to death, cannot die. Invisible. To God alone who is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Oh, so you're thinking, well, I wonder if that's the same thing. You're right, it is. Forever is plural and ever is plural. But you see, it's singular in our Bibles. Well, most of them anyway. Not all Bibles. Some translate it accurately in the correct way, in my opinion. He says, Be honor and glory unto the ages of the ages. There are multiple ages, and God deals with us and men in different ways according to whatever age we are in. 
Now, what does all that mean for you and I then? Well, what, what, how, how are we to look at that? What, what's, what's the big deal for us then? Well, it's simply this. Does believing, and this is a question to ask, by the way, does believing on Jesus as Savior guarantee or promise us life for the coming age? Does that alone, is that sufficient? That's the question. In other words, if Jesus is promising me life for the coming age, are you telling me that that's all there is? But the answer is, of course, no. There is the ages of ages beyond. But the goal and aim of the gospel of the glory of Christ is to be a full-fledged participant in his kingdom when he comes to sit on that throne of his glory. Now, over in Ephesians chapter 2, I'm just going to read this. He says, But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up together, and made us sit together in the heavenlies, or in the heavenly places, in Christ Jesus. That. So you got a purpose statement there. That. In the ages to come. And by the way, I would suspect your translation translates it the way it should be. I think all of them do. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us, in Christ Jesus. So you see, we've been looking at a couple of things here. But the main thing has been this gospel of the glory of Christ. And the fact of his appearing, the fact of his sitting on a throne and establishing his rule over this present earth in the next age. In Ephesians chapter 1, in verse 13, it says this, In him you also, and of course Paul's writing to the church at Ephesus, and he's addressing the believers there, and he says, In him you also trusted or believed after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed. Now, it's a little bit technical, but I think this ought to help us. When he says, having believed, he's talking about a verb tense here that means at some point in time back here, having believed. You believed on the Lord Jesus. You heard the gospel. You received him as your Savior. And you became a Christian. And he goes on to say, when that happened, he says, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. So you see, there is a point in time, in other words, and we all, anybody that's ever trusted Christ as their Savior, we can look back 
on that point in time, and most of the time we can point to a day or a time or where we were and identify the moment we received Christ as our Savior. Now, I, I don't have a clue. Well, I do have a clue. I was around 12, 13, 14, 15, somewhere along in there. That's about as close as I can get. But believe me, and I don't, and I don't know what, I know it was on a Sunday, and I know it was after church. And I remember an evangelist being at church, and I remember going to the church basement with a man who opened the Bible to me and shared the scriptures with me. I remember crying. I don't remember anything he said. I remember praying. I don't remember any of that stuff. But here's what I do remember. I remember riding home in the car that day and thinking, and I'm just a young guy. But I said, I, just, I was talking to myself. I said, Alan, your life's different now. You've changed. I had no clue what it was all about. I just knew my life was no longer the same. Now, I don't mean to necessarily air my dirty laundry about my life. <laughs> I have shared it with a few people, how I grew up, and my mouth was pretty much like a cesspool. That's how I grew up. But when I got home that day, I remember going to the front room, laying down on the couch, and I was thinking about all this that had transpired, and I made, I made a decision right there. I said, you're going to have to stop taking the Lord's name in vain. And I did. And I could count maybe, now it was not easy. I can count about five times when I messed up, slipped up. And I didn't give up all my other words, by the way. I just knew that it was not right to take the Lord's name in vain. So, I mean, that's all I knew. So I quit doing that. What I'm trying to say here is that there came a point in time when I met the Lord Jesus Christ and like the Apostle Paul on the Damascus Road, my life changed. And I'm sure yours did too. But I want you to look down. That was in, and that's in verse 13, by the way, of Ephesians 1. Having believed. Let's go down to verse 19. Look at verse 19 with me. Now, I'm reading from a different translation here because I want, the tr I want it to be right. And this is Young's literal translation. So listen to what he says. Well, I'm have to, I didn't do verse 18. I'm breaking in on the sentence here. But he says, And what the exceeding greatness of his power to us who are believing. Now, that's a present tense. In other words... There was a point in time when you Ephesians believed on the Lord Jesus. But now, at this present time, he's addressing those of you who are believing. You know, some people trust Christ, and they think, I'm saved, I'm going to heaven, and that's it. They don't even care about anything else about their Christian life. Just long as I know I'm going to heaven, I'm, I'm a good guy, I'm okay. Paul is addressing the Ephesians, and he's talking about those who are in the present state of believing. Why is that such an important thing to Paul? Because if you stray, 
as he was telling Timothy and to warn those in the church where he was ministering, that if you stray from the faith, from sound doctrine, then you are placing yourself in jeopardy of missing out on sharing in the Lord's kingdom. Now that may be a hard truth for some of us to swallow, but that's exactly what the scriptures teach us. Now, let's address that. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6. Now, I know that Hebrews is a favored book by a lot of folks, and chapter 11 is even, even a bigger favorite because it's the heroes of faith, right? Well, look what he says concerning them in verse 6, a verse that we are, I'm sure, quite familiar with, when he says, but without faith, it is impossible to please him. Now, faith there, of course, is a noun. It's something you own or possess. It's something you have. Do you have faith? But notice then, go down to, and then he goes on and talks about uh, Noah and Abraham and so on and Sarah. Then come down to verse 13 and look what he says. These all died in faith. Now the question is, is in our Christian experience, having believed, are we presently in a state of believing and trusting in the Lord so that when we approach the day we die, it could be said of us that we died in faith? Because that's important. You see, if we haven't met the Lord in that manner and live for him in the manner of these so-called heroes of the faith here in chapter 11, if we die in any other way, whatever condition you are in, if you're away from the Lord, that's how you're going to meet him then when you're resurrected to meet him at his judgment seat. That won't be so much fun. That will not be such a pleasant experience. You know, I'm looking forward with joy to preach Mary Carter's funeral tomorrow because I know there's a lady who died in faith. That is a joy. I have had some others that were not so much fun as most preachers have because you get called on to do some things that are not necessarily pleasant. So, having said all that then, what does it mean then to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? It means that when you come to faith in the Lord Jesus, it means that there is more to follow than just having Jesus as my Savior so I can go to heaven. There is far more beyond that. And it demands a life of commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I can say again, I, I know where I was. I was in my apartment 
in Winona Lake, Indiana, the day I decided and I, and I got before the Lord and I made my commitment to follow him. And I got on my knees by my bed and I decided this is the day. I don't know. You know, I, I was, <laughs> I really like Paul. When he says he was ignorant, I was ignorant about the gospel, about the Bible. I didn't know what any of this meant. I just knew I needed to do this. And so I did. And of course, I've never regretted it. And I wouldn't want to go back for anything in this world. And so I'm asking you today, have you believed on the Lord Jesus, number one? And number two, have you made that commitment to him? There ought to be some kind of marker to say yes. You know, we saw, and, and I didn't, I could have gone off on a rabbit trail here on the word committed. 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 I started to do it, and I took notes, and I thought, oh, man, that's too big. My time's up already anyway. So my questions, where are we today? As believers in Christ, as followers of His, what does the future, you know, sit there and ask yourself, what does the future hold for me? What if I was to meet the Lord today? What if today was the day of my death? Would I have a life legacy of living by faith? Let this be the day that you determine that you are going to live a life of faith and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Take up my cross and follow me, he told his disciples. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for that wonderful gospel, that one we relish in because of the promise of life to come. Lord, we can't even envision or imagine what a glorious and wonderful day that is going to be when this entire world is transformed by your appearing and you usher in the peace and the righteousness that we long for and desire to see. Grant us that same enablement that God gave you and empowered you and enabled you to live for him and have a life that was transformed so that you could become a pattern to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.